after the mysterious body of the Somerton man was found on an Australian beach in December 1948, investigations deepened, and so did the mystery. Not only did the man's possessions offer few clues, but many months later the investigators also found a slip of paper in the man's pocket, which read, Tamam Shud, Persian for It is Finished. To date, the Somerton man has never been identified, but several theories have emerged in the past few decades, suggesting that the mysterious figure could have been anything from a spy to a spurned lover. Due to the disturbing nature of this content, viewer discretion is advised. If you like your stories full of intrigue, whodunit, and unexplained true horror, then you made it. True Horror Podcast is all that. Pull up your bed covers, turn off the light, and get ready to hear the bizarre, the mortifying, and supernatural tales where you decide if there's truth in what you hear. On the morning of November 30, 1948, a man dressed in nothing but boxer shorts and a singlet polished his shoes. He then carefully put on a white collared shirt and adjusted his thin red tie. He pulled on his light brown trousers, added a brown sweater in his ensemble, and as it was cold out, he grabbed his brown double-breasted coat and headed to the bus stop with his small brown suitcase. Later in the evening, a number of people noticed a man propped up against a concrete seawall on Somerton Beach in Adelaide. His legs were outstretched and his feet were serenely crossed. He struck many as odd. For one, he wore a full suit and polished shoes, bizarre beach attire for a warm evening. One couple remembers him raising his arm as if drunkenly trying to light a cigarette. Another recalls seeing mosquitoes buzzing around his face and thinking he was too drunk to swipe them away. They each believed that the man had had too much to drink and while he stood out, he was harmless and they let him be. At approximately 6.30 a.m. the next day, a pair of amateur jockeys on horseback came across the body of a well-dressed suited man and immediately alerted the police. An initial inspection of the Somerton man, as he came to be known, revealed no obvious cause of death. He was clean-shaven and the coroner immediately ruled out homicide because he had not been stabbed, shot or, it seemed, injured at all. The police noted that one of his pants pockets was repaired with an unusual type of orange thread. In his pockets, investigators found a railway ticket to Henley Beach, a bus ticket to North Glenelg, an American metal comb, a packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, a packet of army club cigarettes which actually contained a different brand, a handkerchief, and a packet of Bryant and May matches. The man had athletic legs and seemed to be in his 40s or 50s. His forearms were tanned and his toes were oddly mangled as though they had been shoved into tight shoes, suggesting perhaps that he'd been a dancer. 
Strangely, the tags and labels of the Somerton man's clothes had been cut off, and investigators found no money, wallet, or identification on his person. It was later found that Dr. John Barclay Bennett from the Royal Adelaide Hospital, who estimated that the time of death was to be no earlier than 2 a.m. The attending pathologist, John Matthew Dwyer, determined that the body had not been moved after death. Dwyer also noted a couple of irregularities. The man's pupils seemed small and unusually shaped. The Somerton man also had blood in his stomach, which suggested to Dwyer the presence of some irritant poison. But subsequent tests found no poison in the man's blood. This has led some investigators to believe that the man may have digested a lethal poison that doesn't leave a trace. Further attempts to identify the man failed. Neither the FBI nor Scotland Yard had the fingerprints on file. And although coroners determined that the Somerton man had died of heart failure, they couldn't come up with a cause of death. The case continued to be investigated, but every lead turned up useless. Approximately six weeks later, on the 14th of January 1949, the police were told of a mysterious abandoned suitcase at the Adelaide Railway Station. It contained the exact same unusual orange thread sewn into the Somerton man's pants and some clothing labelled T. Keen. This, however, yielded no leads. The most baffling clue of all came several months later in June 1949. A renewed search of the Somerton man's possessions revealed a small pocket sewn into the waistband of his pants. There, investigators found a folded piece of paper that read, Tamam Shud. This sent investigators to bring in experts to determine what the name meant. The closest translation was made to be Persian, meaning it's finished or it's ended. The words were written in a distinctive script and were found to have been torn from a rare New Zealand edition of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, the 12th century work of poetry. Police searched far and wide for a copy of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam that matched the distinctive font from the piece of paper Tamam Shud had been written on. They couldn't find it anywhere until a man came to the police station with a copy. While the police were excited, the last page of the book, the part containing Tamam Shud, had been ripped out. But the man who bought the book in claimed that he knew nothing about the poems or the Somerton man. In December of the previous year, he had reported that he had taken a drive with his brother-in-law and parked a few hundred yards away from Somerton Beach. When they returned to the car, his brother-in-law noticed a copy of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam on the floor. Both men had assumed the book belonged to the other. But when the national coverage of the Somerton man had begun to circulate, the two men took a closer look at the book and realised it was the one police were looking for. Inside the book, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean found two unlisted phone numbers and faint lines of code. The first phone number was a dead end, but the second phone number led to a young nurse named Jessica Ellen Thompson, who was known as Joe and lived on Somerton Beach. Thompson was reluctant to speak to the police, though she eventually admitted to having gifted a copy of it to a man named Alfred Boxall. When the Adelaide police pursued this lead, 
they discovered that Boxall was still alive and had Thompson's copy in his possession. Though Thompson claimed that she didn't know the Somerton man, police reported that she reacted strangely to seeing a plaster cast of his face and almost fainted. With that lead seemingly exhausted, police next turned to the faint code in the book. Under a black light, they could make out a strange number of letters that made no sense at all. And not even naval intelligence in Australia could crack the code. Lacking more leads to pursue, the police lay the Somerton man finally to rest on June 14, 1949. When the South Australian coroner published the final results of his investigation nine years later in 1958, his report concluded with the admission, I'm unable to say who the deceased was. I'm unable to say how he died or what the cause of death was. In March 2009, a university team in Adelaide led by Professor Derek Abbott began an attempt to solve the case by cracking the code. His investigations led to questions concerning the assumptions police had made on the case. Abbott also tracked down the barber wax cotton of the period and found packaging variations in hoping of finding clues to the country where it was purchased. But nothing turned up. The decryption of the code he started from scratch. Although it had previously been determined that the letter frequency was considerably different from letters written down randomly, the format of the code also appeared to follow the format of the Rubiat, supporting the theory that the code was a one-time pad encryption algorithm. Copies of the Rubiat as well as the Talmud and Bible were being compared to the code using computers to get a statistical base for letter frequencies. However, the code's short length meant the investigators would require the exact edition of the book used. With the original copy lost in the 1950s, researchers have been looking for a Fitzgerald edition to complete their findings. In recent years, several theories have emerged about the Somerton man and what happened to him on the beach. The first popular theory was that the Somerton man killed himself after being rejected by Joe Thompson. Some have suggested that Thompson, who died in 2013, actually had a son with the Somerton man due to the similarities in her son's appearance. Theories imply that maybe he was rejected by her and that she didn't want him in their lives. Perhaps the Somerton man decided to end it all because of that. This makes sense for a number of reasons. One, the Somerton man had no defensive wounds. And two, the Taman should note seems to connect him to Thompson since she gave out the book as gifts. The more provocative theory, however, is that the Somerton man was a spy that knew too much. His death struck many investigators as highly unusual, especially if he was indeed killed by deadly poisons that disappear. Supporting this theory is the fact that no one came to claim the body despite all the publicity around the case, plus the indecipherable code and confounding nature of the meaning of Tamam Shud seemed like something out of a spy novel. 
There has been persistent speculation that the dead man was a spy due to the circumstances and historical context of his death. At least two sites relatively close to Adelaide were of interest to the spies. The Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Woomera Test Range, an Anglo-Australian military research facility. The man's death also coincided with a reorganisation of Australian security agencies which would culminate the following year with the founding of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, known as ASIO. This would be followed by a crackdown on Soviet espionage in Australia, which was revealed by intercepts of Soviet communications under the Venona Project. Former South Australian Chief Superintendent Len Brown, who worked on the case in the 1940s and 50s, stated that he believed that the man was from a country in the Warsaw Pact, which led to the police's inability to confirm the man's identity. Weirder clues have also been found since the Somerton man was laid to rest. Retired Australian policeman Jerry Feltis, who wrote the only book yet published on the case, discovered a witness in 1950 who said they had seen one man carrying another on his shoulder on the night of November 30, 1948. Could that have been one drunk friend helping another, or the Somerton man's killer finishing the job? It seems plausible to think, based on the timeline, that the new organisation of ASIO made its presence felt within a few months of its first operation. By June 1949, the Prime Minister had authorised the first telephone interception operations, and on 8th of July of the same year, the CPA headquarters in Sydney was raided at ASIO's direction. ASIO was modelled on its British counterpart, the Military Intelligence 5, or MI5, which grew rapidly. Sir Robert Menzies, who replaced Chifley as Prime Minister in December 1949, became a strong supporter of the service. From a timeline's perspective, it was certainly possible that ASIO could have been involved, especially given the fact that one or more of the newly recruited ex-police officers came from South Australia, and all these ASIO operations were happening around the same time as the discovery of the Somerton Man. It seems that it is possible that the Somerton Man was indeed a Soviet spy. And what's more intriguing, possibly disturbing, whether the police service at the time had the capability or inclination to create or perhaps even modify additional evidence in the Somerton Man case. This perspective about ASIO gives great doubt about something definitely not being quite right about the evidence in the Somerton Man case. What's even more intriguing is that between 1946 and 1949, scores of Germans, many of them Nazis, agreed to leave the ruins of their homeland to live and work in utmost secrecy in Australia, some of them at the Salisbury Explosives Complex, which was situated only 34 kilometres from Somerton Beach. It has also been established that during that time, the South Australian police withheld crucial evidence to the press and allowed the press to muddy the water by publishing false facts about the evidence on at least two occasions. In other words, the police were in some way responsible for hiding the Somerton man's identity and purpose, 
and given the decades-long secrecy that surrounded the settlement of these Germans in Australia so soon after the war in Europe ended, a war that cost over 9,000 Australian lives, it does then become evident that Joe Thompson, also known as Jessica Harkness, may indeed know more about what happened to the Somerton man. This is backed up by Joe Thompson's own daughter, Kate, who years later spoke about her own mother's involvement and the possibility of the Somerton man and her mother being involved. She suggested that her mother and the Somerton man may both have been spies, noting that her mother taught English to migrants and was interested in communism. She could also speak Russian although her mother would never disclose to her daughter where she had learned it or why. But it did make Kate suspect that her mother could have been involved in a Soviet spy ring. Recently, in May 2021, the body of the Somerton man was exhumed and tested for DNA, but it seems that nothing eventuated in solving the case any further. The South Australian Police Historical Society holds the plaster cast, which contains strands of the man's hair. Any further attempts to identify the body have been hampered by the embalming formaldehyde, having destroyed much of the man's DNA. Other key evidence no longer exists, such as the brown suitcase, which was destroyed in 1986. In addition, witness statements have disappeared from the police file over the years. An investigation had shown that the Somerton man's autopsy reports of 1948 and 1949 are now missing, and the Bar Smith Library's collection of notes do not contain anything on the case. What became strange over the years was the several number of possible identifications that had been proposed. Each one, though, proved to be a dead end or false. When the man's fingerprints were not on South Australian police records, the police were forced to search through military records after a man claimed to have had a drink with a person resembling the dead man at a hotel in Glenelg on, th on the 13th of November. During their drinking session, the mystery man supposedly produced a military pension card bearing the name Solomonson. In early January 1949, two people identified the body as that of 63-year-old former woodcutter Robert Walsh. A third person, James Mack, also viewed the body. Initially could not identify it, but an hour later he contacted police to claim it was Walsh. Max stated that the reason he did not confirm this at the viewing was a difference in the colour of the hair. Walsh had left Adelaide several months earlier to buy sheep in Queensland but had failed to return at Christmas as planned. Police were sceptical, believing Walsh to be too old to be the dead man. However, the police did state that the body was consistent with that of a man who had been a woodcutter, although the state of the man's hands indicated he could not have cut wood for at least 18 months. By early February 1949, there had been eight different positive identifications of the body. Following publication of the man's photograph in Victoria, 28 people claimed to know his identity. By November 1953, police announced that they had recently received the 251st solution 
to the identity of the body from members of the public who claimed to have met or known him, but they said that the only clue of any value remained the clothing the man wore. In 2011, an Adelaide woman contacted biological anthropologist Maisie Henberg about an identification card of an H.C. Reynolds that she had found in her father's possessions. The card, a document issued in the United States to foreign seamen during World War I, was given to Henneberg on October 2011 for comparison of the ID photograph to that of the Somerton man. The ID card, numbered 58757, was issued in the United States on the 28th of February 1918 to H.C. Reynolds, giving his nationality as British and age as 18. Searches conducted by the US National Archives, the UK National Archives and the Australian War Memorial Research Centre have failed to find any records relating to H.C. Reynolds. The South Australian Police Major Crime Branch still have the case listed as open. Over the years since the death of the Somerton man with no actual identity being revealed, deaths have come to the surface that may have been related. In June 1945, three years before the death of the Somerton man, a 34-year-old Singaporean man named George Marshall, born Joseph Saul Haim Marshall, was found dead in Ashton Park, Mossman, with an open copy of the Rubiat on his chest. Ashton Park is directly adjacent to Clifton Gardens. Marshall's death is believed to be a suicide by poisoning and occurred two months before Harkness gave Boxall the inscribed copy of the Rubiat. Marshall was a brother of David Marshall, who was later to become Singapore's first chief minister. An inquest was held on 15th of August 1945. Gwyneth Dorothy Graham testified at the inquest and was found dead 13 days later face down, naked, in a bath with her wrists slit. On June 6, 1949, the body of two-year-old Clive McNoson was found in a sack in the Larges Bay Sand Hills, about 20 kilometres up the coast from Somerton Park. Lying next to him was his unconscious father, Keith McNoson. The father was taken to a hospital in a very weak condition, suffering from exposure. Following a medical examination, he was transferred to a mental hospital. The McNosons had been missing for four days. The police believed that Clive had been dead for 24 hours when his body was found. The two were found by Neil McRae of Larges Bay, who claimed he had seen the location of the two in a dream that night before. The coroner could not determine the young McNoson's cause of death, although it was not believed to be natural causes. The contents of the boy's stomach were sent to a government analyst for further examination. Following the death, the boy's mother, Roma Magnoson, reported having been threatened by a masked man who, while driving a battered cream car, almost ran her down outside her home in Cheapside Street, Largest North. Magnoson stated that the car stopped and a man with a khaki handkerchief over his face told her to keep away from the police or else. Additionally, a similar-looking man who had been recently seen lurking around the house Magnuson believed that this situation was related to her husband's attempt to identify the Somerton man, believing him to be Carl Thompson, who had worked with him in Renmark in 1939. 
Soon after being interviewed by police over her harassment, Magnoson collapsed and required medical treatment. Another man, J.M. Gower, received anonymous phone calls threatening that Mrs. Magnoson would meet with an accident if he interfered, while A.H. Curtis, the acting mayor of Port Adelaide, received three anonymous phone calls threatening an accident if he stuck his nose into the Magnoson affair. Police suspect the caller may be the same person who also terrorised a woman in a nearby suburb who had recently lost her husband in tragic circumstances. The case of the Somerton Man is one of Australia's most bizarre cold cases, with all leads exhausted, no clues to his identification, and the mysterious cause of his death. The fact that his suitcase was found at a railway station, yet his body was discovered dead on Somerton Beach, has baffled police and other investigators. The mysterious code that has never been cracked, and the words found on that piece of paper, Tamam Shud, continue to intrigue many who wish to solve the case. The only clues that revealed what happened on that day on the 30th of November 1948 was that the Somerton man had bought a train ticket but not caught a train, bought a bus ticket and caught a bus from the railway station to the beach. His height, his shoe size, what he had eaten that day and the clothing he owned were the only pieces of evidence ever to be revealed. The ticket clerk and bus conductor who issued the Somerton man with his tickets didn't remember him, neither had any specific recollections from that day. Bear in mind that it was an ordinary work day for them and they weren't questioned for some months following the Somerton man's death. They didn't recall noticing the man whose pictures they'd seen in the newspaper or via the plaster cast bust. Possibly one of the most fascinating aspects of this case is the secret code found inside the copy of the Rubiat from which the Taman Shud paper had been torn. The fact that there are additional deaths that are either directly related to the Somerton Man mystery or similar circumstances makes a very good theory that the Somerton Man's death has some significance and that the circumstances surrounding his death are unusual and possibly sinister. His death, still almost 80 years later, remains to not only be a mystery to Australians, but that of many others worldwide. The clues, the code, the fact that ASIO was being launched and the unknown cause of death really make for an interesting story. The unidentified body of this man's suspicious circumstances was indeed more than we will be ever allowed to know. And if this man was part of a Russian spy ring, what was he doing in Australia? What purpose would it serve? Even with all the knowledge we have on the Somerton man, it's still fair to ask, was he on the run? If so, who was he hiding from? He was drunk on a beach, fully clothed in a suit and matching attire. It seems like he may well have wanted to spend his last hours somewhat peaceful and in a state of obliteration so that he could end his life in high spirits. It's also worth to note that where he was found was only 400 metres from Joe Thompson's house. As for the code that although many believe they have solved it, some say that it was just an indent in the book from using the back of it to write notes on, leaving the letters to mark the book, which does seem to be a possible scenario. 
Research also suggested that the plaster death mask was not the actual Somerton man. When aligning the cast up with photographs, it can very easily be seen that the jaw and nose do not line up. That to me is more mysterious than any of the other clues on the case. The mystery surrounding Joe Thompson and her involvement in the case is baffling. Her son, who was approximately 16 months old at the time of the Somerton man's death, has the same kind of features around the earlobe that match each other. The Somerton man's ears were of a rare shape according to medical professionals and for Thompson's son to have the same condition does seem fair to assume that he may have been the father to the boy. Her own daughter Kate also added her own theory which seemed to follow the espionage theory that her mother and the Somerton man were somehow involved in a spy ring. The pieces of that puzzle seemed to line up more than any other. Why would these people be in Australia and maybe with the foundation of ASIO that the Somerton man's days were numbered anyway if he was revealed to be who he was? Maybe his death was to cover his tracks so that Joe would also not be revealed as a spy and that she and obviously their son would be protected by his death. The Somerton Man case remains one of Australia's most intriguing mysteries and has fascinated the public for many years. It remains to be seen whether his true identity will ever be known. You know what to do, that five-star review. Or you can swing by YouTube to comment and like. Now if you want to get more personal and scare me with your tales of horrors, take a ride on the wild side and share them on my subreddit, True Horror Podcast. Until next time, remember that sometimes things you see in the shadows are more than just shadows. Shadows.